Hi, welcome to episode 21 of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. His name is Dag Herbjörnsrud. He's a historian of ideas. He's an author, Aeon writer, and founder of Center for Global and Comparative History of Ideas uh, in Oslo. Uh, welcome, Dag. Thank you. Thank you, sir. <laughs> and thank you so much for coming on with us today, Dag. Yeah, sure. It's a, it's a pleasure. So the reason why I wanted to have Dag on today, guys, is because from the articles that I've read, or I've wrote, wrote, the articles that I've read so far, so Dag has covered really interesting topics in the area of philosophy and history, especially in the context of the philosophy of ideas and kind of where ideas come from, right, sort of how they evolved, and even kind of how they've been suppressed, which I thought was really important. So one of Dag's mm -hmm. phenomenal articles is called The Non-European Women Who Founded Philosophy. And just I wanted to kind of start with a quote from there and to kind of to talk to you a little bit about it, Dag. So yeah. in the article, Dag writes, one day it might become possible to include the voices of marginalized philosophical women again. These women highlighted the questions that were most pressing in their time and theorized philosophical answers that still need to be discussed in the 21st century. Philosophy was once a women's world. It is time to reclaim some of our lost realm. So, oh, wow. Yeah. So Dag, can you talk a little bit about that and kind of how the, mm -hmm. let's say, how the philosophy of different types of prominent women has been suppressed throughout history? Right. Now, what I did was to, well, actually start with the Indian philosophy, uh, the Upanishads, uh, which, and those texts are approximately 2,700 years old. So that means it's a couple of hundreds, hundreds of years older than Plato and Aristotle. Right, and um, so so one of the women who are mentioned, or are one of them, uh, that's Gargi. Now, and she is a pretty fierce woman. She stands up against uh, one of the other men philosophers, uh, the the men philosophers, and she um, she reclaims her time, so to say, uh, and she starts a very interesting. Uh, conversation with Jaina Valkia, who is the main uh, philosopher in the first of the Upanishads. And um, they discuss back and forth when it comes to um, uh, well, the uh, complexity of the world, how the world or the universe is crea created. And another woman that's uh, Maitreyi and uh, uh, she has actually given the name to a college in New Delhi from 1967, wow. the Maitreyi College uh, at the New Delhi University, and um, and she she has a very uh, interesting uh, conversation with her uh, her man or peer her peer man uh, who is actually. Uh, uh, discuss their discussion discussing what is the point of having anything in this world if we can't um, take it with us when we die so so that's two uh, two examples of women who have uh, been how to say suppressed from the history of philosophy for at least for the last couple of hundred years mm -hmm. And what was the answer or conclusion that you come to? Is there a point to having anything important or trying for anything so hard if we can take it with you on pond death? Right. No, yeah, exactly. That's what she found out, mm -hmm. that um, uh, the, the material gains of this world is nothing important in the long run. Mm-hmm. So uh, well, you we got to you got to read it. Uh, it's rather complex, mm -hmm. but I think it's actually a discussion which is how to say very into the uh, modern day world. I mean, for the twenty first century, I think it how to say these texts of the Upanishads they are gaining more and more ground when we are thinking about climate change and how to say other existential issues of the time. Yeah. And so in which cultures have you found women to be the most prominent in terms of academia? Well, 
Um, actually, I, on all continents, actually. Um, so I did start with the with India. Mm-hmm. There are um, so the the women are rather central in this first and oldest Upanishad, and that means the beginning of philosophy, as Schopenhauer would have said it. He was a great fan. Of, um, he was a great fan of the Upanishads and and the Indian philosophy. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you go to the Mahabharata, we can see Sulaba, for example, and. In the uh, 13th century, there is Akka Mahadevi, and she is another uh, thinker and poet, philosopher, um, philosopher, writer, you know. And so, so, so in Indian tradition, there are many. And uh, if we go to the Chinese uh, tradition, we, we have Dan uh, Shao, for example, um, she's an historian, writer, and actually a rather feminist text that she wrote uh, 2,000, 2,100 years ago. Mm-hmm. And what was, what was feminist philosophy like on those continents? What did it encompass? Well, yeah, the Indian and the Gargi um, episode, so to say, that, that was rather uh, standing up for her rights as a uh, female uh, thinker or a female voice. Ban Shao, she's, uh, how to say, more traditional, somebody will say. She has been presented as rather traditional because she wrote a book uh, that um, explains how women should behave or girls should behave in society mm-hmm. and some will it'll say it's a rather how to say conservative yeah. but it depends on um de- depends on the point of view i would say because she says rather explicitly that um boys and girls should learn to teach and write in the same manner mm-hmm. so 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 that was a rather uh, a st- strong argument, I would say, um, that women should learn to um, read and write yeah. at that time. And uh, throughout, also when it comes to, to Confucius um, or Kung Fu Tzu, mm-hmm. he was uh, one of the main founders, of course, of Confucianism. Uh, he also um, uh, referred to women philosophers um, or women thinkers and uh, and he argued that they were uh, how to say his equals mm-hmm. and we can see that also far later in Chinese philosophy uh, in the 16th century uh, when Qi he refers to made by Iran uh, and he writes letters to her, and they have a back-and-forth conversation when it comes to philosophy. Huh. So, so that was China. And we can see something similar in South Korea uh, in the 17th century, especially. Um, we can see in the Arab and Muslim world, we, for example, have um, Arabia, who is um, actually one of the founders of Sufism, Sufism within Islam, right? Which is, um, I don't know how familiar people are with Sufism well, within Islam. Well, just for our audience, can you tell us a little bit about it? Right. Well, um, that's rather complex. But, um, actually, uh, it's the mystical sect of Islamic uh, religion, right? It's more of the... Uh, philosophical, right. spiritual, mystic side of it, right? Right. You might say, yeah, you might say that, and uh, I'm a little bit hesitant, I'll say, to to d- describe it because whatever I say will be, how to say, not complex or well uh, described. Uh, well described. It's rather complex, but uh, as you, but uh, you pretty much uh, summarized it. And it has been pretty influential throughout history, this Sufism, uh, the Sufi um, way of thinking within Islam. 
and Rabia uh, of Basra. Now, Basra is a city in uh, today's Iraq, and uh, she was born approximately, yeah, around the year 800 or in the 8th uh, century. And mm-hmm. uh, so that means uh, some 150 years after uh, Muhammad. And uh, she is recognized as one of the founders of, of Islam. Uh, or, I'm sorry, uh, founders of Sufi Islam, yes. Um, so, so she's one of the important voices. And uh, she is uh, famous for, how to say, going around in the streets and uh, telling people to, how to say, embrace God. Mm-hmm. And her philosoph- philosophical way of, uh, how to say, um, having this personal connection with God, mm-hmm. um, that also influenced uh, Sufism throughout the centuries. So we have books from the 12th century, for example, written by male Arab uh, Muslims, and they they have actually a book um, which describes 80 different women wow. who are rather important within this Sufi Islam uh, movement. And later on, we also have um, we also have uh, Asia al-Bawunya in the 15th century. She is born in Damascus uh, in Syria. And she has a a book which was uh, recently uh, translated into English by Homerine. It's, um, it's it's the the book of love. It's a really interesting uh, book which describes her how to say yeah her philosophy when it comes to love love when it comes to, to God yes but also when it comes to other humans mm-hmm. uh, with the humans and um, and to the <laughs> to the world as such. So uh, it's uh, approximately 150 pages. And she refers to a lot of thinkers and philosophers for the last 800 years hmm. in her book. So it sounds like from your research that women have been pretty prominent throughout history. And maybe if not necessarily our culture and kind of the Western canon, but obviously around the rest of the world. Right. Uh, uh, exactly. When it comes to um, also the Greek um, philosophers, we, we also have... Um, well, we know about Hypatia from today's Egypt um, in the 5th century. Um, a, a book rather recently was published, and it said that um, uh, Socrates and Diotima, that she was very important for Socrates, mm-hmm. actually. Um, so, so, so also when it comes to the Greeks, there are, how to say, new ways of looking at philosophy. Mm-hmm. Uh which and those ways they how do they describe it in a little bit different way than what has happened for the last couple of hundred years because this as Peter Park has um, demonstrated in his book from 2013 uh, this is a rather new way of looking on uh, looking at philosophy when it comes to viewing it as a uh, how to say white male phenomenon mm-hmm. you know it's um, before the 1820s, uh, women were often included uh, in the history of philosophy. Um, and actually, one of the symbols of philosophy, uh, all, that was actually women. So now, uh, there were women, that goes back to the old Egypt as well, mm-hmm. with Seshet. And when it comes to the also the Greeks, they had these women, a woman as a symbol of philosophy. But things started to change in the late 1700s. And with when it comes to Kant, for example, he was how to say not very um, 
positive when it came to um, women, nor people of another color than his own. So, well, yeah, yeah. so that, that set the, the pace for our mainstream view, at least in mainstream culture, as far as women's role in philosophy. It took a turn there, you're saying. Yeah, Peter Park has, how to say, demonstrated that in his book of uh, 2013. And uh, Brian Van Norden at Yale News and at Vassar College, he has in his book from 2016, uh, Multicultural, uh, Multicultural Manifesto uh, for Philosophy. That book uh, also demonstrates that um, this is a rather new, uh, how to say, ideology to exclude people uh, of color and exclude women from philosophy. So, so that happened after Kant and um, Hegel in the 1820s. So that's what they are demonstrating, Park and Van Orten, that after the 1820s, um, it was pretty much, uh, how to say, settled uh, when it comes to Europe and in the, in the Americas. Yeah. Um, so this was kind of, um, yeah, th that um, rather um, racist uh, way of looking at other people, actually. Yeah. That's what, uh, yeah. And do we have any evidence in terms of, let's say, the sources or the foundation of this exclusion? Like, why is it that these sort of white people in the, you know, kind of the main, or the now major canon of philosophy, why was it that they felt so threatened by these marginalized groups? Right. Um, yeah, that's a rather <laughs> complex, it has to be said that, you know, the late 1700s, it was, um, this was an era of, you know, slavery, of colonialism, and these European empires and states, they, how to say, rule the world or try to rule the world. Mm -hmm. And um, I guess this is one way of doing it, and that is uh, actually to, yeah, exclude um, Asians and Africans from... Uh, the history of philosophy. Uh, I've, um, I've also actually by chance um, read an, a text from 1733 in Germany because at that time, that was the early enlightenment uh, in Europe. And uh, one of the philosophers who was teaching in Halle, the University of Halle, and Wittenberg, where M Martin Luther actually um, lived a couple of hundred years earlier. Um, that was Anton Wilhelm Amo, okay? And he was actually born in Ghana, mm -hmm. in today's Ghana. And he was, well, he was brought to Europe as a slave, but he was um, raised as a rather rich uh rich uh, child and uh, he um, got the best education and he ended up with, with a PhD or a doctorate as they called it in those days mm -hmm. uh, in philosophy and he started to teach philosophy at the best universities in Germany in today's Germany in the 1730s and uh, one of the texts I read from the rector Krauss at the University of uh, Halle and, and Wittenberg, he hails this African philosopher, and he, not because he has, how to say, uh, grown into a European kind of uh, thinking, but he, he, he claims that the reason why he, Amo, is so how to say intelligent and smart is because he understands him as a part of African philosophy. And he refers to, in this text from 1733, he refers to, for example, Augustine or Terence 
these Amasig people, uh, that means Amasig means, well, often called Berbers, but actually from North Africa, mm-hmm. and they were, uh, were very vital in the development of Christianity. And if you read Augustine, he is defining himself as an African in contrast to the Roman Europeans. Wow. So, yeah, it's uh, in the letters of Augustine. Mm-hmm. So he argues, you know, uh, so this is another way of, so there is a lot here. I can continue right. wow. for ages. But um, uh, if you look at the sources, he, uh, um, his mother, the mother of Augustine, Monica, she was, uh, she was an Amazigh. That means the, how to say original mm-hmm. uh, population of uh, nor- northern Africa. Mm-hmm. And so, okay, Augustine d- defined himself as an African, mm-hmm. and so did actually um, Krauss, the rector uh, at the University of Halle in 1733, mm-hmm. that means 1300 years later. So, but my point is, something happened between the 1730s and the 1760s, 1770s, and gradually 1780s. Yeah. Yeah. So things started to happen. You know, as a, and we can read David Hume, for example, in 1754. He starts to write how to say very negative when he, uh, against uh, African people. Mm-hmm. So that and then you have this whole new um, well by chance this is called the enlightenment the, the, I might when it comes to some parts of it I would rather say that that's the dark, dark ages wow so mm-hmm. I mean just to kind of just to make sure that we have it clear so you're saying that according to Augustine that African philosophy was influential in Christian thought um, yeah, well, as we all agree upon, according to the present standard canon of today, mm-hmm. right? Augustine is important, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he is the most important uh, Christian philosopher, uh, actually, yeah. isn't he? Mm-hmm. Um, from those early days, uh, you got Anselm a little bit later, but according to Martin Luther as well, I mean, Augustine is the most important philosopher. Mm-hmm. Now, by chance, he is, um, he was no European, you know, he was, uh, uh, according to himself, he was an African. Yeah. So, and some will say, well, you know, he's, well, he was a Roman. He did write in Latin, mm-hmm. and then well, there are, and you might say that about Salman Rushdie as well, or Ajuntati Roy, or uh, to take some anyone today. They write in English, yes, but right. it doesn't. But they still define as, right. I guess, Indian, or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so. The interesting thing, I would say, is how do they define themselves? And when it comes to Augustine or Terence of Carthage, all they define themselves as Amazigh, or the original African um, inhabitants of that northern region. And if you read Augustine, he also refers to the Desert Fathers, of of Egypt as one of those who were influential when it comes to his um, conversion into Christianity. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, so, yeah, then again, this is another example. Um, and, that, well, yeah, when it comes to how I read the canon a little bit differently yep. than the standard version of today. Is there any reason that he might have stated why the Egyptian philosophy um, helped him to decide to convert to Christianity? Any kind of reasoning for that? Um, Well, yeah, this is... Now we're into rather um, Christian thinking and philosophy. Um, uh, so, So these desert 
fathers, as they were called, uh, like Abba Anthony, is they lived from the 200s um, CE, Common Era. So they were, so, so they started to move into the uh, desert. Uh, actually, also, there were desert, desert mothers who also entered the desert in order to to live for themselves and uh, develop their attachment to God and Christianity. Um, so, 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 yeah, I was just referring to that. Augustine was referring to them as one of um, so uh, one of those who were influential for his conversion. So, yeah, it, it wasn't he, he. Yes, he traveled also to. To, to to Italy or to this Italy with, um, and Rome, but I would claim that it's possible to, to look um, upon Augustine as an autism, more of an African uh, philosopher. And if you if you re- read his um, main books, I would uh, uh, yes, I would say that we can define him as an African. Um, and he, he argued against the, the Roman uh, Empire when it comes to understanding the Christianity. So we have a very uh, important council in four, in, on the 1st of May, 418, uh, where the um, uh, African Christian thinkers um, were... Um, uh, having a statement against Rome. So, again, now we are into, how to say, Christian philo- philosophy, and uh, uh, but my, how to say, my decolonial way of looking at this um, is a little bit different than the standard colonial way of looking at this development of Christianity. So, um, so yes, I would say that's possible to 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 uh, describe it in a little bit different way. And the interesting thing is that um, I'm basing my thinking a little bit on what Krauss, this rector at the University of Halle in today's Germany, wrote in 1733. Right. So before the turn or the wave started to go in another direction in from the 1750s and so on. Yeah, so this version of decolonialized history, what you could call true history, is it's so important to talk about and to highlight and make sure it's mainstream and that people understand. I'm actually really happy. I, I didn't, some of the things that you're revealing here, I'm mm-hmm. finding out for the first time. And um, I wouldn't call myself a, a scholar of any sort as far as history is concerned, but still, uh, as someone who maybe could identify with the common man or a layman or something like that, it's very interesting to be hearing this for the first time. And I hope anyone who learns about this can learn about it and share it also with other people because this is, uh, it's monumental. This is yeah. what actual history is, not and, someone else's version of it. And you know what this reminds me of? I don't know if mm-hmm. you guys ever read the book When Things Fall Apart. So it's Heard really it. yeah, one of my favorite books. So one of the most right. poignant parts of that book is, so it's essentially about these, like, um, I think it was British conquerors, right, who kind of came to Africa. And, you know, they sort of, um, they saw these primitive people and they said, well, you know, these are the savages, right? We have to kind of save them, right? They were missionaries. And so what right. they find in somewhere in the context in the middle of the book is that essentially the religions are virtually the same. And so um, I don't remember who the character was who said it, but he said something along the lines of, like, I don't understand why they don't understand that our religion are virtually the same they say that we don't believe in their god but we actually do right the way we just sort of embody those religious beliefs is a bit different but actually we believe in one god right so we're not polytheists and so the point of the book was to show that essentially these various philosophies that seem so different actually aren't Mm. and that a lot of the sort of the things that well this isn't part of the book but this is my interpretation a lot of the beliefs that we have right in the sort of in the white canon is sort of borrowed from other cultures that none of these ideas are essentially original that would you agree? Right, 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 right. Totally. And personally, I would say also um, uh, I'm influenced by um, Ngugi Wa Thiongo in his book of 1986. Mm-hmm. It's called Decolon- Decolonizing the Mind. Mm-hmm. 
So, so that's how um, it all started. How to say this rather recent development when it comes to decolonizing. Uh, we got Linda to E.Y. Smith in um, 1999 as well, and Gurminder Bampra decolonizing the university yeah. in a book uh, from 2018. So, um, these books um, are important, I would say, because they're trying to also give a new reading of the canon, try to, to see things in a little bit different way. Mm-hmm. And I'll just um, reminder that, you know, um, when I'm talking now, it's not that precise, right? So I would rather refer to my books and my articles at Skokie.org or something yeah. in order yeah. to get those, you know, precise uh, quotations, you know, and my pronunciation of the names are not perfect. No. Just saying, but um, so yeah, um, where where are we? Well, yeah, when it comes to religion, as you uh, mentioned, <laughs> it comes to Shinwa Akeba, you referred to yeah. his book, I think. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, uh, I would, yeah, again. From my point of view, and I think I can, how to say, argue for that very strongly, is that, you know, Christ- Christianity is, is no European religion, mm-hmm. you know, nothing. It's, uh, well, uh, it actually developed much of it in Africa. Yeah. If, um, and remember, the earliest Christian nation on this planet um, save Armenia, but that's Ethiopia. So Ethiopia is the oldest um, Christian nation. Mm-hmm. Uh, from the we know that um, they converted the state was converted into Christianity in the three thirties. Uh, we can read it in the Acts eight in the Bible. It says that uh, that uh, an Ethiopian nobleman was uh, in the region south of Jerusalem and he was converted into Christianity as actually I think the first or one of the very first foreigners ever to be converted into Christianity so remember the Roman Empire didn't uh, convert into Christianity before 386-87 CE common era right mm-hmm. so it was for hundreds of years it was that was not the place Europe was not the place for developing Christianity so so that was why Augustine and Terence and all, all these North African philosophers Amos, with, with a Masic background they were developing the thought of Christianity and uh, yeah, and so 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 that was just my point. I was trying to say that you know Christianity is not a European yeah. religion. And so, just to, I think kind of sort of pivot just for the sake of time. We also want to focus on the other article that I found to be super influential. So this yeah. is Dag's article called or titled "The Radical Philosophy of Egypt: Forget God and Family Right." So phenomenal article, phenomenal title name. And so I want to start out with this quote from Dag. So Dag writes, The existential message of the immortality of writers, written by Irsesh, echoes through the centuries and millennia, over sand dunes and oceans, before finally reaching us now in the 21st century. Thinking and writing is more important than religion, materialism, and even more controversial, one's own family. Man perishes, he writes. His corpse turns to dust. All his relatives return to the earth, but writings make him remembered in the mouth of the reader. A book is more effective than a wall-built house or a tomb chapel, better than an established villa or a stella in the temple. So, Dag, um, I mean, my question is going to be because that's such a phenomenal quote. How, how is it that sort of uh, the writing of Irsesh has affected you, and what does it mean to be immortal through writing? Wow. Um, yeah. Well, my interest is... Um, basically to try to bring forward some of these lost voices of philosophy and of literature and of, you know, world, the global history of at ease. Mm-hmm. And this text that you quoted, it's actually written 3,200 years ago, 
1200 BCE, before the Common Era. And so that means, you know, 800 years before uh, Socrates and Aristotle. And I, I think that's, um, I've written this article in cooperation with uh, Joachim Kwok at the University of Heidelberg in Germany. So at least he has, how to say, he's an expert when it comes to Egyptology. And he has, uh, um, how to say, approved the uh, translation. That said, you know, this text is actually, has been made accessible by Toby Wilkinson. Uh, his book of 2016, The uh, Ancient Writings of Egypt. So I would recommend that book. It's rather easy, accessible. And he has translated a lot of interesting texts from uh, 2200 before the Common Era. That means 4,200 years old uh, texts. Uh, and all the way down to uh, a thousand years before the Common Era, yeah. 3,000 years ago. So there are so many interesting and important and vital texts from Egypt, that, and they have not been translated or, um, how to say, made accessible to the public in general. So they are translated, yes, but in very, how to say, scholarly productions mm -hmm. and, and books and volumes. So Toby Wilkinson, for example, he has made it accessible uh, in, a, in a Penguin edition, yeah. and, th and that helps. And, and there are many similar texts like this that I would say can make us think about philosophy uh, in a completely different way, at least when it, how it all started, you know. And these texts of philosophy from Egypt um, also explains, I, will, I would say, they also explain um, why Plato and uh, Aristotle and Socrates and the Greeks, why they also always claim that philosophy was from Egypt. Mm -hmm. You know, they didn't, the Greeks didn't, didn't say that, oh, we invented, you know, philosophy ourselves, you know. Socrates, he, he wrote that uh, Pythagoras and uh, Solon, that they all traveled to Egypt in order to gain knowledge. Uh, we know that, well, according to Strabo, uh, he was a historian, Greek historian living a couple of hundred years after um, Plato, but he, he went to Egypt and supposedly found the house where Plato was living wow. himself in Egypt. So that's according to Strabo. Now, if you read the standard canon of the U.S. or the Europeans, they will tell you that, oh, well, it was probably just fantasizing and Plato didn't go to Egypt or stuff. So, mm -hmm. but if you, when you read Phaedrus uh, of Plato, we can see that he quotes uh, he quotes Socrates in saying that um, everything, how to say, important when it comes to writing and arithmetic and thinking that was from Egypt. Yeah. So it, it says in, in that text, um, in that text, it, it, that, that's, what the, that's what the Greeks were um, saying and writing themselves. Look at the Isocrates, for example. He, he said the same thing, mm -hmm. that the most famous, and Isocrates, he was actually older than Plato. And he said that, you know, the foremost of the the Greek philosophers and thinkers, they went to Egypt. If you read Aristotle, that's another interesting thing because we are generally presented with the so-called facts that democracy hailed from Athens, right? Mm -hmm. Greece, right? But if you read the politics of Aristotle, 
we can see that that's not what he was writing. He was uh, he's writing that um, Cartag of Tunisia. So that's the most important uh, city when it comes to development of democracy or a good rule. So they had the oldest system in Cartag that was a city founded 800 years before the Common Era. Mm -hmm. So according to Aristotle in Politics, which is a rather influential book, uh, for I would say, mm -hmm. um, but he compares the constitutions of three uh, different cities, and that's um, Sparta, Crete, and in the end, Carthage of Tunisia in today's northern Africa. And the, the conclusion is pretty much that um, the people of the Phoenicians um, of Carthage, that they were the ones who had the oldest and the best and the most stable democracy or the rule of law according to the constitution. And how further back was this from Athens when Athens developed their democracy? How many years before? Yeah, that that should make it four hundred years wow. earlier. But yeah, that's it. Okay, let me rephrase that. Okay, the the uh, the, uh, the city of Carthage was approximately, according to the sources, founded at the year eight hundred. So. Uh, when they develop democracy or uh, okay this is interesting because Aristotle as we know he didn't say that democracy or mob rule in itself was the best thing right he he also wanted a more how to say stable uh, right he wanted you know, a representative uh, republic yeah right 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 so, uh, but what's also interesting is that if you read John Adams, and I guess all of you in the U.S. know about John Adams, uh, the second president of the U.S., but if we read him, we can see that who, who, does, um, who does he refer to when it comes to the, the best rule? Well, that's Carthage. He didn't refer to Athens. Wow. Right, and this, now we're talking the 70s, 1790s. Oh, I could talk a lot about U.S. Constitution and that part, but I won't go into that too much. But uh, if we at least um, refer to John Adams, so he he writes that Carthag was that was his best uh, example of a good good democracy plus or whatever we should call it right yeah. Uh, because yeah that democracy word is not um, <laughs> easy to define mm -hmm. but, um, but at least John Adams he didn't point to Athens at the time Athens was a part of the Ottoman uh, Empire as well so it was not this rather new uh, what you say, craze for the Greeks? Mm -hmm. That's a rather new. Um, that's a rather new movement. I would say after the eighteen twenties and eighteen thirties. So the U.S. Constitution that was uh, that was in the seventeen hundreds, right? And the Greeks weren't that popular at the time. So it seems like John Adams had read Aristotle. The strange thing is that. People of today, the they don't seem to have read Aristotle too much, or Herodotus, for that, for that matter. He didn't refer to the Greeks either when it comes to the implementation of democracy. Wow. And so, in your article, you also write, Irsesh raises a, an internal philosophical dilemma. What is more important, doing good for the humans to come or doing good in life right now? So, apparently, it seems like for him, the answer is obviously sort of doing good for humans to come. And so, how come you think that writing in the form of symbolic immortality was more important to him than establishing, you know, what can be kind of conceptualized as the good life in the present? Why was he so future-oriented, do you think? Oh, wow, yeah. That's a rather existential yeah. uh, question. Well, from his writings, do we know anything? Uh, if I, well, it's hard to say. Mm -hmm. um, but what's surprising with this text from Egypt, uh, 3,200 years old, is that, you know, um, 
it's like it's not what we think it is you know it's we think we are taught to believe i would say in our colonial system uh, uh, we are taught to believe that you know egypt they were just concerned about you know religion or death or something but if there are so many texts that prove us prove that theory wrong you know it's like um so this Ursus uh, text um I mean, yes, he, he, he says that, you know, he we shouldn't care about the ancestors that much, you know. Mm-hmm. But, um, so that's a, how to say the opposite of what we generally perceive that the people of Egypt or of the ancient Egypt were saying or uh, being taught to believe. So um, he, um, he says that, you know, live today. And uh, and make great works for the future generations to come. So he says, how does it? Yes, be a philosopher, be a writer. That's another name of that text of his. Mm-hmm. By the way, be a writer. Um, so so he says that um, it's more important to write for eternity than to how to say hail your ancestors or he actually or he or it might be a she as well mm-hmm. we don't know for sure um but it also says that you know it's it's more important than your own kids uh, so this is a little bit rather radical mm-hmm. i would say philosophy so i don't know if we are ready for that uh, yet uh, or if ever but uh, at least it's an interesting discussion to have, you know. I mean, what's what's more important yeah. Um, yeah. today or tomorrow, you know? And uh, I would personally say, if, uh, you know, uh, that I think it's great that he or she or says, uh, wrote those texts all these thousands of years ago. And for us today, it gains a lot, you know, uh, just to read those texts. And um, uh, so luckily there are people around that, you know, think more about the generations and futures to come than they think of their own good just today. Yeah. Alan, you had some ideas you wanted to talk about? It sounds like what Ursesh um, wants wants us to know is one to uh, live life today, but at the same time also be a writer, so that, um, as as he said in a in a quote, a name in the mouth of the people will surely be effective in the afterlife. M- meaning, right. the names will be on the lips of men for for years to come. And there's a sort of, um, as you wrote in the article, uh, an immortality to that, uh, to these ideas. And then when people read these ideas, um, they they become like uh, like heirs to those ideas, and that's fascinating because, um, of course, the Egyptians they created uh, mausoleums, uh, tombs, uh, gigantic pyramids, but these things um, come and go. But it's it's evident that writing is one thing that happens to stay immortal, and right. that's what Ursesh uh, seems to point to, and you point to as well. Right, right, right. And by the chance, he he lived just a hundred years after Akhenaten, which was, and who was a very important um, pharaoh or ruler of Kemet or Egypt as we know it. So Kemet is the original name of of Egypt, and uh, Akhenaten. He was very important because he actually. Um, he actually threw away all these old classical gods of Egypt and he turned into some kind of monotheism, you know? So he, he, he believed in one god or in one, in one son, so to say. So he started this worship in, in cooperation with his uh, wife, uh, Nefertiti. So they started to uh, worship the sun or one god and it hasn't so yeah it hasn't been said that you know they were again um 
thrown from uh, from power. They were removed from power, and and after a while, e- Egypt or Kiamat went back to the their how to say old gods. They, I think the the country was changed forever because of this rather revolutionary way of you know introducing one god or one um, a completely new religion you know it was rather radical and, and this changed egypt and some will say it changed changed history some will some are claiming that there is a connection here between the development of monotheism um, within judaism and uh, the other uh, abrahamic religions and, and Dag, for you, I wanted to ask, in terms of symbolic immortality and creativity, right? So for all of us, like, so we have a podcast, right? That we're writers. So we do all of these different things. I mean, it can successfully, I think, be argued to sort of alleviate our sense or our fear of death and mortality. And I wonder for you, how, what do you think is the connection and how sort of close the connection do you think it is between creativity and that sense of symbolic immortality or even emotional well-being as a whole? Like, how important do you think it is to be creative for us as human beings? Wow, yeah, right. Um, yes, it seems to be uh, one of the most important things, how to say, ever. That's that's what makes us human, I think, right? Mm-hmm. But that said, you know, I mean, there are so many um, ways of, how to say, arranging our lives. So, I mean, it's possible to possible to be a hockey player or a carpenter as well and and, and that's just as important uh, because it gives happiness to a lot of people right mm-hmm. so I, I would also um, uh, how to say approve of those ways of life and um, but that said um I think, well, you know, all can enjoy sports, and uh, but I think all can enjoy philosophy as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, and for many people, that's uh, that's the most important thing. And uh, in the long run, um, I think that might be more worth than a gold medal in the Olympics for the humanity as a whole. You know that people at least uh, create uh, 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 works that can influ- influence other people and uh, at least we are connected uh, throughout the ages and uh, I think these old texts from Egypt or the the text from Torihuana of, of Mexico for example in the 1600s is another example of how you know, uh, men and women can talk to each other or understand each other uh, throughout the ages. I mean, though, when we read those texts, I would say it doesn't matter uh, what kind of era or what kind of country they are written in. I mean, they talk to us, these texts, and I think that's important. Yeah, and so we had a guest on a few weeks ago. Her name is Stephanie Kent. And so we had pretty much an entire episode on literature and books and how we relate to them and how they essentially relate to us. And the main point or one of the, I guess you can call them the major conclusions that we came to was that essentially the thing that makes books so powerful is that essentially not only that we empathize with other people, but that we also get to sort of learn about ourselves through them. And what's so amazing about the writing and I think what does make it immortal is the fact that all of us can identify with these texts that were even written hundreds, if not hundreds, hundreds of thousands sometimes years ago sometimes you can even find sort of cave wall paintings right that kind of resonate with us which is so wild yeah, like you absolutely. would never expect yeah. that right yeah. right it's uh amazing and i think uh what art and philosophy gives us is i i guess that um, it gives us this sense of common humanity you know we can understand each other and i don't think people have changed that much for the last 3,000 years. It seems like if you read one of those um, texts from Egypt, uh, for example, the, the teachings of Patutep, 
um, that's written 4,000 years ago. So we, there are several of those teachings. They are teaching their kids um, how to behave. So they have like some of the 40, 50 different maxims, different rules. Mm-hmm. And those rules are, how to say, so up to date. It's rather weird. Um, so I think you, um, most people can, how to say, relate to it or maybe use them when it comes to raising kids, yeah. you know, because it says how to behave when it comes to how to say rich people and poor people and try to treat people in a good way. And well, it's much more sophisticated than I'm um, say referring paraphrasing now right Mm -hmm. so uh it's so um interesting to read because it's uh, it's the same dilemmas that we have today it seems like then that the same the same ones that they had in egypt four thousand years ago yeah and alan for you i wanted to know what stood out for you about the sort of the words of the teachings of your session well, one thing that's fascinating is uh, back to that idea of um, immortality through through writing, through having your work read. <coughs> How fascinating is the internet today? Because it's like a compilation of all the knowledge that we have in the world, basically allowing that to have a sort of immortality as well. Yeah. And I think that's fascinating because um, your work, the works of, of others, um, this podcast, for instance, any kind of writing, it's all being collected and stored online. And what's fascinating is if nothing happens to the internet, of course anything can happen, but say nothing mm. does, that's fascinating how much knowledge we have stored of humanity. And as time goes on, say we hold on to it, it's fantastic that we'd have it all, well, not in one place because it's not a physical location, but. We have something to reference, and it's it's great because information that we gain now and information that we discover from the past, it, if, if we don't lose the internet, we'll probably never be able to lose information again, as long as nobody alters anything, I suppose. But barring that, that's fascinating because the, anything that we'll reference in the future will be able to never lose it again uh, as we've lost like other types of history like for example the, the burning yeah. yeah the burning of the library of alexandria mm-hmm. there's so many documents uh, a lot of uh, egyptian history as well that was lost if i'm not mistaken yeah. mm-hmm. and we will we can have things like that never repeat again by holding on to our history yeah. for ages to come so yeah. it's fascinating right yeah. right yeah, that's true. I, I think we have a great opportunity now, you know, to spread knowledge and uh, to, uh, how to say, reread the canon, the classical text, to read new texts. Uh, there is such an opportun- opportunity to do that now. Um, that said, you know, there are also backlashes, you know, to this. So... Many people will, because of this, how to say, global internet and all the possibilities, it feels so overwhelming, it seems like, you know, so different nations will, how to say, yeah, stick to their own version of history and claim that their nation or country is, how to say, different or superior to others. So that's also a global trend we see these days, right? So, um, yeah, it goes a little, a little bit both ways here. I'm not, and I'm not sure where this whole world is going. It's going to be fascinating to see. Yeah, that's true. But also what's interesting is the work of um, Tony Wilkinson, as you mentioned before. Uh, a lot of the scholarly, scholarly texts that he made very... Mm, how should I say, like digestible for a mainstream audience. Um, mm. It sounded like you were saying there's even more things that have been translated from ancient Egyptian texts that just haven't been made available to the public yet. So that's yeah. fascinating to see what's to come with that as well. And I'm sure that'll be released on the internet and that'll have its own momentum. 
Um, I do agree with you though, yes, uh, there, there could be yeah, countries that would say, no, our history is correct, this one is inferior and things like that. But it's mm -hmm. possible that new information might have a momentum to it, depending on how it's shared and spread. But right. I agree with you. It is a very iffy thing, and we have to see how, how it goes. Yeah. And just, Dag, yeah. I would have just want to read one last quote from you and just ask you one final question before we wrap up. So right. back to the article on non-European women and the Western canon. So Dag wrote, the numbers will reveal that women of color in the U.S. and in Europe, for that matter, are better represented in natural sciences than in academia's oldest field, in this case, philosophy. So no other discipline in the humanities is less diverse in terms of the curriculum, students, and professors. The philosophy departments, journals, and curriculum lists are often as lacking in diversity now as they were in the 1970s. And so for you, Dag, I'm sure this is something that you've probably talked about and probably even thought about extensively. What would you say is the remedy for that or the sources of remedy? Hmm. Well, uh, podcasts uh, like this, mm -hmm. I guess. Um, I think that's that's important uh, to spread the word, to spread the knowledge. Mm -hmm. Um I think one of the main problems of today is probably that we have been fed into this system. I call it the colonial system. Uh, and this system for the last at least 100, 200 years, it's, it's often based on these national criteria, right? Or, um, or so-called Western, Western you know, in in Europe and in the U.S., they they call it Western civilization mm -hmm. stuff, and I think that's uh, it's just not correct. Uh, when I checked uh, how this the sources, it's it doesn't fit with those um, that ideology, which says that this is some kind of Western uh, unity or something. That's a rather also rather new. Um, term after the World War One in 1920s that that was when that Western idea grew and was introduced into academia. So, um, well, the remedy uh, is it's a lot of how to say work. That's one thing, mm -hmm. uh, and we need a lot of interested people who can spread the knowledge and. If they want to read other, how to say, philosophers or other texts than the you know standard, um, the standard ones, uh, well, I guess people have to uh, stand up and uh, uh, tell it as it is, and, and spread knowledge about uh, about what they can read on the internet of of, of articles. Uh, or in or in books, of course. Mm -hmm. And but that said, I think it's rather it's also difficult to change too much actually at the universities uh, because you know there is so much money going into this system as well. And so if we follow the money, I don't think too many have very much to gain on this. You know that to decolonize or to 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 give a completely new completely new understanding of philosophy or or, or the humanities, you know. Uh, so it's not going to be too easy, I would say. That's what but we have to I'm sorry. No, I said that's why we have this renegade podcast. <laughs> Right, right, <laughs> exactly. That's that's why we need you guys. And uh, uh, well, but there is a world outside the universities as well, I guess. And uh, but I mean, it's just to uh, keep reading, yeah. Keep writing. Keep uh, podcasting. Final questions. Yeah. Um, Dag, uh, where could we uh, find more work by you if we wanted to? Uh, find something, let's say, online. Right. Uh, uh, okay, I have this uh, site, uh, skoki.org, S-G-O-K-I dot org. And so I've collected the texts uh, there. And uh, um, yeah, I'm trying to uh, 
cooperate with the other institutions like Glocknos at Cambridge University and uh, Brian Van Orden at Vassar College mm-hmm. and um, and uh, and Cosmopolis, a uh, a journal in Belgium. I'm trying to edit and make a, 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 an issue on these questions. Yeah. So um, I guess uh, it's all out there on the web, I guess. Yeah, and you guys can also find Dagsworth on Aeon.com. That's A-E-O-N.com, which is a philosophical website where a ton of philosophers and academics contribute. Right. Yeah. And Dag, can you, for our audience, give us your Twitter handle and your Facebook? Um, right. Oh, it's um, at, oh my God, it's my last name. It's so yeah. difficult. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's okay. difficult. Well, like also, it's Scandinavia. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it's at uh, Twitter at uh, at D A G H E R B J O R N S R U D. Now that was easy. But just Google me or whatever, and <laughs> you'll find it. <laughs> you'll find me. Yeah. Well, thank you so so much for coming on. This was such an enlightening show. Pleasure. So interesting. Right. Yeah. Sure. Anytime. Thank you, Dag. Thank Thanks, you. Dag. Have a great day. Thank you. Likewise. <laughs> And guys, remember to like us on Instagram and Facebook at Seize the Moment Podcast and at Seize underscore podcast on Twitter. Remember to subscribe. Hit the bell. (laughs) Hit the bell. (laughs) And uh, one thing I just wanted to read before we go, I didn't do it with Dag, but this one was very interesting. I built a monument more durable than bronze and higher than the royal pyramids. I shall not wholly die. And that was cool. And it's actually followed by this, uh, uh, I believe this is Latin, <laughs> Exegi Monumentum Eri Perennius Regalic Situ Pyramidum Atlius. Mm-hmm. It was cool. Yeah, I yeah. read it to myself before he was even on. Mm-hmm. I was just like, okay, this feels powerful. Like yeah. I'm uttering words that have not been uttered in ages. <laughs> I felt like that. We were keeping, we're keeping the way. legacy going. Yeah. All right. But guys, uh, tune in to the next episode. It'll be episode 22. And look forward to Emmy Zen in the future. It won't be the next one. It'll be the one after the next one. Yep. But see you guys next week. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you.